Attention men, are you wanting to break free from porn or other unwanted sexual behaviors, but finding it seemingly impossible to quit? If so, we can help. My name is Jonathan Darty, the founder of Gateway to Freedom. This three-day workshop is for any man who wants to overcome any kind of unwanted sexual behavior. So whether you're married, single, or divorced, this powerful and proven intensive weekend will help you uncover what is at the root of your struggle and discover the man God always created you to be. Space is limited, so call us today at 210-822-8201 to register. That's 210-822-8201 or visit bebroken.org slash gtf. Good day, listeners. Jonathan Darty here with another edition of the Pure Sex Radio program. We're a listener-supported outreach of Be Broken Ministries, and we exist to help individuals and families move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ and equip others to do the same. You know, sometimes we don't have a specific topic for the podcast, but instead we simply have a conversation with someone who has loads of experience and wisdom and sexual struggles and recovery, and so that's what we're going to do today. Our guest is author and speaker Nate Larkin. He's the founder of the Samson Society, which is a fellowship of Christian men who are serious about authenticity, community, humility, and recovery. In our conversation, Nate shares his own story of addiction and recovery. Then we dive into lots of questions that draw on his decades of personal and ministerial wisdom that will prove helpful to any man listening who wants to break free from unwanted sexual behaviors. To learn more about Nate and his ministry, visit SampsonSociety.com. For even more resources, visit BeBroken.org or check out links in today's show notes. And friends, as always, would you please rate and review the podcast after listening so that it will help others to find it. All right, let's dive into today's conversation with Nate. Well, all right, Nate Larkin, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. It is a joy to be here. I've heard so many good things about Be Broken for so long. Uh, your ministry has packed in so many men, including a lot of men in the Samson Society. So I'm just grateful to get to finally have a conversation with you. This is awesome. Right, I know. I feel like we've been kind of living kind of parallel lives in this space for a while. Yeah. Um, and so it's good to finally be able to get get a good um, full conversation yeah. uh, going. And actually, one of the things that I wanted to do, I really didn't, you know, we don't necessarily have a quote unquote topic uh-huh. that we're really going to try to dive into today, because I feel like for someone like you that has a story of your own, but also has been in this space of ministry as a leading voice, um, I wanted to just take this opportunity to kind of just pepper you with questions that are about that journey. So for any of our few listeners that maybe don't know who Nate Larkin is or your story or the Samson Society. Can you give us a little bit of your own backstory of how you got into uh, your own recovery, but then also this space of ministry? Yeah, well, you know, it certainly isn't uh, the ministry that I had planned. Um, I, you know, I grew up in church. Dad was a preacher. I was marked for ministry from an early age. Uh, And it was always my ambition. I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I was going to do Billy Graham one better. You know what I mean? Uh, I had my share of trauma in early childhood, including the death of my mother when I was nine years old. 
Uh, and I grew up in a house where we didn't talk about sex. That in itself sent a very strong message. Sex is not something we talked about. Uh, <laughs> nobody warned me that porn even existed. Uh, but when I encountered it, I knew I had to keep it secret. Uh, so, you know, I, I went through the typical binge and purge cycles during adolescence, any well-meaning Christian kid trying to be good. Uh, I had no idea the needs, the emotional needs that porn was, it wasn't meeting, but it was medicating during those years. Uh, I was convinced that marriage was going to solve it. Uh, I had no idea that during those years I was using porn as a stress management or a distress management tool. And even though I met a great woman who I deeply love, uh, marriage, as it turns out, is stressful. And not long, <laughs> not long after the honeymoon was over, uh, the problem reappeared and then metastasized for me. So in the beginning, it was all softcore porn. It was ironically during seminary. I went to Princeton Seminary. It was on a seminary-sponsored trip to New York City that I was introduced to hardcore porn. And that hook set very deeply. I didn't even know at the time uh, the difference uh, that between uh, still images and video images, movie images. I didn't know that that was stimulating another part of my brain part of my brain that cannot distinguish between real experience and virtual experience. And, uh, yeah, so, but I, you know, went on into ministry and it was during ministry. I, I told myself then still battling with guilt, still going through binge and purge cycles, doing my best to white knuckle against this obsession. I told myself, you know, at least porn is some protection. It's protection against infidelity. And I'm not cheating. There's not another person. I was serious when I promised my wife that I'd keep myself only under her so long as we both shall live. I was unaware that porn was actually grooming me, setting me up, programming me. So that when, as years passed, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, now I'm a pastor, the father of three, that the perfect storm arrives and the programming kicks in. And now I cross the flesh line into prostitution. And uh, that just the desperation and the self-hatred uh, over that and the fear of being caught, being humiliated, bringing dishonor to the name of Jesus, joining the ranks of the discredited, you know, uh, Christian ministers who were full to, you know, all kinds of sex scandals. That was enough to make me quit the ministry. I then went into business where I had the great misfortune to succeed. So now I've got money and less accountability. And that led to a very dark dozen years. So now it's 1998. Allie and I moved from South Florida to Middle Tennessee to be close to our first grandchild. And it's there that Allie catches me one night uh, on the computer looking at porn. And, uh, we've been married now for 20 years and she says the words that saved my life. Allie says, I'm done. Mm -hmm. She says, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. Those were the words that gave me the motivation finally to do something I'd never done before which is really seriously go for help.
and the help that was available at that time. I didn't go to the church <laughs> for a, a, a lot of reasons. Uh, the help that was available was a 12-step group, an SA group. Uh, it turns out that SA is centered in Nashville, where I was you know, living close to there. So there were meetings. And it was there for the next couple of years, uh, I was uh, deprived of my Christian vocabulary. Uh, it was not a Christian group. Now, it's in the Bible Belt. Almost everybody in the room is a Christian anyway. Right. And most of us are refugees from the church or still active church members, right? Uh, but being deprived of my Sunday school answers and being for the first time in a fully gracious environment where it was safe to say the truth, I'd never experienced a place that safe or heard that level of honesty or frankly felt that much empathy. Uh, and it was actually when I was deprived of my stock answers that weren't working that the Bible changed for me. I met God in a whole new way. Uh, and uh, it still, it took me a couple of years to experience sexual sobriety. And that was due entirely to my own spiritual and intellectual arrogance. I did not want to join that group. I came, you know, with an agenda of setting the land speed record for recovery. I thought that what I had was an information problem. And I found the people finally who had the secret information that would make it possible for me finally to, to overcome this compulsion on my own. What I didn't realize was, first of all, there isn't any secret information. And second, what I had was a relationship problem. I was well known, but nobody knew me. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to make the decision to join the human race, to become just another bozo on the bus to actually become a part of a willing part of an organism rather than an organization and to realize that I am fully dependent upon other people. Uh, and uh, so anyway, it was revolutionary. It was, uh, it, it, it set me free eventually from uh, shame, liberated from shame. I started to tell a few people in detail <laughs> what my experience was, including my pastor and gave him my phone number and my permission to pass it along to anybody who thought I could help. So six years in, I'm walking with a dozen guys. And it was then at my wife's encouragement that we decided, let's, we're all Christians now. And not all of us sex addicts, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, among these dozen were a couple of guys whose major fight was something else. The one thing we had in common was isolation. Right. And, uh, with, but, but now we wanted to be able to put this, our Christian experience, our Christian vocabulary, our Christian heritage together with this amazing recovery experience, which in itself came from Christian roots, right? Mm -hmm. But let's make it explicit. And that's when we started the Samson Society. And that was, it's coming up 20 years ago. Uh, and it grew quickly. We got very excited. 2007, we put out a book, Samson and the Pirate Monks, hoping to inspire other guys to do something like what we were doing. And since then, I've encountered so many groups. We, we all carry the same DNA. It's amazing how many of us started at about the same time. Uh, 
but men gravitated. Since then, 600 local groups, more than that, have started at the Samson Society. And then a couple years before the pandemic hit, we took the big step of going online with online meetings. So now we've got meetings. There are meetings in seven languages and guys in over 100 countries. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for, you know, stepping in, you know, as you were sharing some of your story, um, especially when you talk about, Hey, I had to enter the human race, you know, I had to learn. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. This wasn't just an information thing. You got a relational issue. It, it made me think of, yeah, you had to, you had to embrace the, the scariest word for most men who've been trying to control their lives. And that is surrender. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and why that's also important to the other men that are coming into these spaces that you're creating in the Samson Society to recognize there's a release that has to happen in order for freedom to really be realized? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, I, I think it was both fear and pride that kept me in isolation. Uh, I think uh, Mark Laser, I think made the, or, or was it Patrick Carnes in his description of the sex addict who said that one of our core beliefs is that nobody else really cares to meet our needs. We have to meet them on our own. Um, the twin convictions, first of all, that nobody else was going to take care of me. I couldn't trust anybody to meet my emotional needs or what I perceived to be my sexual needs. And <laughs> coupled with this, this arrogant belief that I can do it on my own. Uh, between the two of those, that was, and, and just buried in shame. I, 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 I was a good performer and I'd managed, even I'd left the ministry with my reputation intact. And I was, uh, you know, I was good at being bright and shiny and larger than life. And, I, and, and that was the way that I found significance. To give that up? Uh, you know, I remember coming into my first essay meeting and looking around at these people. You know, I hear their stories and I'm thinking, well, these people are really screwed up. And I'm, I'm leadership material here. Uh, and I think it was good for me. I mean, I relapsed like a champ for the first three years. And, and that was absolutely necessary to bring me to the end of myself where I finally had to admit, doesn't matter how smart I am. It doesn't matter how well I've mastered the vocabulary. I was selling recovery before I even owned it, right? Um, I cannot do this on my own. And my secret surrender to God doesn't really mean anything. I have to surrender not only to Christ, but to the, to the body of Christ. Frankly, during those years, I didn't even believe in the body of Christ. I thought that was a metaphor. I did not believe that Jesus is physically present on this planet in the lives of broken people. I believe that today. And the greatest act of surrender I make to Christ every day is to tell the truth to another member of the body of Christ. And then... Jesus shows up in that conversation time and time and time again. But, so let yeah. me ask you, because I, I totally agree with that. In fact, I tell people all the time that that we're, we're deluding ourselves if we think 
that just me and God in my closet is going to transform my life. There is that relational component that's necessary. But you said something that I think uh, needs to be parsed out a little bit, or I think our listeners are going to want to hear a little bit more about it. You, You came to this place, you said, after these, you know, first three years of relapsing like a champ. Yeah. Um, of saying, I can't do this on my own. Can you help us understand the how understanding that you can't do it on your own and yet also being personally responsible for the decisions that you make in your, in your life? Right. How do those things integrate in recovery? Yeah. Oh, that's that's so good. Yeah. I, I remember uh, hearing a guy say in an essay meeting early on, um, if it's not my problem, there's no solution, right? I have to take ownership of the process. This is me. It's my responsibility to do it. But my first responsibility now is to, is to, uh, is to ask for help. And, and that means to, uh, to, to ask for divine help. And that act of surrender in the morning prayer and in the evening prayer, absolutely vital to finding traction in recovery and keeping traction in recovery. To understand that in the end, it is my heavenly father who's carrying me through this thing. But then to flesh that out in being willing to, you know, I was always willing to help, always willing to ask for help. I'm I'm always willing to give help. People always came to me for advice. Even when I was an active addict, people came to me for advice and I gave good advice, which led me to the flawed conclusion that I can be my own advisor. When the truth is there are whole parts of my life I can't see because I'm inside it. On my own, I walk in circles, but with another man, I can walk in straight lines. So am am I willing to ask for help? as well as to give help? Am I willing to ask for advice and take advice as much as to give advice? That takes humility. Mm-hmm. And, and to this day, it's not like, to, to this, my, my, my arrogance is, has not come to an end. My humility is not complete. It's still hard for me to ask for advice. I still have this tendency to think I'm the smartest guy in the room. Or when I start to lose my footing in my recovery, and I still do, this, this is a recovering, this is a slippery thing. No matter how far down the road of recovery I go, I'm always the same distance from the ditch, right? And, and, and life is still stressful. And when those stresses come, that old brain remembers that, <laughs> that old stress reduction behavior, right? And I can start to drift toward the shoulder. I've got to have the humility to, at that point to get with a brother. Mm-hmm. And I've got so many ways to do it now. I've got guys in my neighborhood I can connect to. I've got guys in my local group I can connect to. I've got a few thousand guys I can connect to virtually. I've got a phone book full of contacts. But like the old AAers say, sometimes that phone still weighs 500 pounds. My, I would still prefer, there's a part of me, especially, especially if I've fallen prey to the temptation to start to climb up on the pedestal a little bit and to be, you know, you know, <laughs> the guy who somehow graduated from the process or the guy who, you know, 
what I've come mm-hmm. to recognize now is that sometimes the very best example I can set for another man in recovery, rather than try to, to show success or show strength, is to, is to give him my weakness and to ask for his help. Yeah. That helps me and that helps him. What are some of the biggest surprises that you've encountered over your journey of recovery and, and maybe even journeying with other men? What are some surprises? What are some things that have surprised you? Well, the first is I thought that I would lose uh, my usefulness in the ministry. My ministry was over if I ever you know, told my story. And that's actually when my ministry started. I thought that I was gaining um, the trust and admiration and respect of people by having my life together, being bright and shiny and having the answers. Um, during, you know, I, I, I'm a good preacher, always been a good preacher. Um, and, you know, during those years when I was hiding my life, I thought that I was inspiring people. Really what I was doing was I was impressing and intimidating people. Uh, And I was giving them the idea that I had it all together. And if they just listened to me long enough, they would have all the answers and they could have it all together too, like me. um, And it didn't result in deep connection with people. (laughs) Now that I, you know, now that I've blown that, perception to smithereens and I do my best to do it when I speak. Well, here, what I, what I find now is people tell me things they never told me before. My, my relationships are far deeper. My words carry more weight and there's far more fruit from my life. If I look back to those years before recovery, there's almost nothing left, Jonathan. There's almost nothing left. The church that I planted is gone. The words that I said are forgotten. That is, in the words of scripture, I mean, that's wood, hay, and stubble. It's gone. But when I look at the fruit of my years of recovery, just being another broken man still in process, it's amazing, the fruit. Mm -hmm. Now, you've... um... You've maybe already shared some of this by just where you've been going in terms of the storyline here. But if you could, if you could go back and talk to your pre-recovery self, what advice would you give him based on some of the things you know now? Yeah. 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 I would tell him, find a, find a safe place to get honest. Stop. Stop. I mean, I, I was 42 years old before I hit the wall. Um, surrender early. One of the good things, uh, a few good things that's happened, I think, with the advent of the Internet and, the, and now that the age of first exposure to hardcore porn is, you know, in the single digits. God, you know, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds are seeing the stuff now that I saw for the first time as a married man. At least those young men are hitting the wall earlier. So I have a privilege of doing one. We have a a newcomer meeting, a virtual newcomer meeting every day at Samson Society, and I get to do one. So I do Saturday. And what I've noticed is 
There's, I used to think when, when 20 years ago, I thought you had to be at least 40 years old to hit the wall and get into recovery. And what I'm seeing now is it's trending younger. And every time I see a kid who's 20, 21, 19, you know, uh, coming in the door, I congratulate him. He's, he has the opportunity for a couple of decades that I lost. Uh, yeah. Surrender early uh, and often, I guess, mm-hmm. what I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, one of the things I, I had that question asked of me recently, and I, and I, I kind of gave a little bit of a, an answer that the, the questioner wasn't necessarily ready for. I said, I would tell my, my younger self, um, get familiar with pain. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like not as something just arbitrary, but like recognize that to get to where you need to be with character and relationships and intimacy and growth and faith it's going, there's going to be pain along that. There's going to be types of suffering. And I think everything that porn and lust and all that teaches us is all pain is bad. Like run from pain. Everything yeah, pain yeah, yeah, yeah. has no, has no value. So yeah. um, that's one of the things that I would say. I wanted to also ask you, you know, as you think about your, the last 25 years, and then also the 20 years of ministry, what are some of the foundational practices that you have discovered to be the most transformational? Yeah. In your own life, but also in terms of what you're trying to encourage men, what you've heard from other men saying, these are the fundamental practices in my life that I have found to be the most transformational over a long period of time. Yeah. 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 I would say uh, the the absolutely fundamental one and the the one that was toughest for me to get is the discipline of daily, honest conversation with at least one other guy. Um, so, you know, I believe Christianity properly understood as a team sport, not an individual event, right? My big mistake all those years was playing the wrong game. I was playing one-on-one against a superior opponent. He's only lost that game once. Um, so, uh, you know, my tendency always was to isolate and hide my, hide my questions, hide my failure. Uh, you know, hide my pain and think my way through life. I now live collaboratively. And I find that uh, I make better decisions when I have uh, the input of a lot of people, including my wife. Mm-hmm. She's included in this circle. My wife does not resent my brother. She kind of feels like now she's got a bunch of brothers-in-law that she didn't have before. Um. And uh, and then what I notice is in our conversations, because all of us are in process, we clue each other into, you know, if, if we uh, one guy has a spiritual insight, a biblical insight that, the, you know, something the Lord has told them within the last 24 hours, he shares it, you know, it it, uh, it cross pollinates the same with the books that we share, the conversations that we have. And that. That is the big shift for me. That's the fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. I had, see, here's the thing. During my years of active addiction, I was well known and I was seen as a friendly guy. But I did not have deep 
conversations with anybody. And I always kept my cards close to the chest and I never let everybody see everything. I never let anybody see everything. That's not true anymore. And, um, and, 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 and life is fundamentally different. What are some of the, um, what are some of the, the mistakes that you've made in recovery that have taught you some of the best lessons? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you know, my early mistakes was hiding the slips, pretending to have it together, even as I'm careening toward the, toward the edge. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after I hit the ditch, keeping it secret for a while, wanting always to talk about my, my slip or my relapse in the past tense from, from, from place of victory. Right. Uh, <laughs> I would say that's probably my, the biggest mistake. And I, and I made that a lot in early recovery. And even after Samson started said that, here's the thing. Um, I think we somehow have this, I, I have this idea that if I'm going to be in a leadership position, then I should really have my stuff together. Uh, the struggle should be over. And there should never be another slip or God forbid a relapse of any kind. Because if I do, I lose my credibility. I go back to zero. So um, (laughs) I remember I had, it was right after I finished writing Samson and the Pirate Monks. I, I, I buried myself for the last two weeks just to meet the deadline. And I wasn't talking to anybody And then I finally wrapped it and I sent it off and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, congratulations, boy, you wrote the book on recovery. And it was, it was not three days later that I face planted into the back into internet porn. It was just a slip of the mouse. I didn't see it coming and it was building, but there it was. Boom. And, uh, and I did not call my Silas. Uh, that's, you know, the, the, my lead guy. I didn't tell anybody. I, um, I waited until I, and that happened on a Friday. And our meeting is on Monday. I didn't tell anybody on Friday. I didn't tell anybody on Saturday. I didn't tell anybody on Sunday. And now I'm, and, and I really hadn't found my footing yet. And so it's Monday and I go to the meeting. And, um, uh, and everybody, I tell everybody, hey, I finished the book. I turned the book in. You know, it's a lot of high fives. And uh, so we hit the big part of our meeting. The core part of our meeting is a sharing time. And, and somebody picks a topic. And that guy who picked the topic that night picked honesty. Hmm. Of course he did, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then we, um, because we're a big group, we break into smaller groups for sharing so that we can get done within the one hour time frame. So now I'm looking at four other guys who look up to me. I'm the guy who started this thing. And the topic is honesty. And at that point, I knew this was a crucial decision. Am I going to look at these guys? Because there's a voice in my head that says, you have to lie to these guys. Or they're going to lose their faith. They're going to lose faith in the process. You're the inspiration. Pull it together. Fake it. And instead, and it wasn't easy, I told him the gory details. 
And then when we got back together, I broke protocols for the close of the meeting. And I actually told everybody. There was about 30 guys in the room that night. Uh, And then I did something I haven't done before or since. But I said, guys, I'm going to ask you for help. I know I've scratched this itch. And so it's going to itch bad for at least the next week. And a daily phone call isn't going to be enough for me. I'm going to need to make an hourly phone call. And I passed around a sheet and I said, would you, and I numbered it from, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I said, would you, if you could tell, if there's an hour that I can give you a call, please put your name down to give me the phone number because I need to make hourly phone calls for the next week. I can't tell, I, I can't tell you, Jonathan, the number of guys who in the years since have told me that for them, that was a pivotal night. Because they said, if Nate can be honest, I can be honest. Yeah. We, we often forget that our, our king, our leader, Jesus, showed us what it was to be vulnerable, to be human, to be humble. Now, obviously, he never sinned, but the, the principle is there, right? Yeah. The greatest leadership is to be servant of all, not to be the one that's propped up. Yeah, and I think yeah. the, the fact that you were willing to do that showed guys, oh, that's the way the process actually works. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. So the, the last question I have for you before we wrap up here, Nate, is um, what does hope mean to you today versus maybe what it meant to you at the very early stages of your recovery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, I call myself a hope dealer. Jonathan, because that's mm-hmm. really, that's the best gift I give to new guys coming in, but not a false hope. I came in with an unrealistic hope, which is that I'm going to put this addiction in my rearview mirror, and I'm going to learn how to conquer uh, the compulsion so that I never feel it again, and I never come close to failing again, and I'm going to be a former addict, and that's how, you know, and I'm so grateful to have been disabused of that false hope because my hope today is that um, my life is going to mean something. I'm going to have meaningful relationships with the people in my life, with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with people who God brings within my orbit. Um, And by sharing with them, honestly, about being present in their lives and allowing them to be present in mine without giving, exerting any pressure on them that they have to live up to some ideal and not pushing any script just by being present. Mm -hmm. Jesus will be present in those conversations. Healing will come and my life will mean something. That's good. Well, Nate, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you being open and, and sharing your life and your history and your ministry with us. Where can uh, where can our listeners go to learn more about uh, Samson Society? Yeah, they can just go to Samson Society, S-A-M-S-O-N. There's no P in Samson. Uh, there was a... Uh, anyway... <laughs> samsonsociety.org or .net and that can, that can connect you with the community. You can listen to the Pirate Monk podcast uh, and we're going to have as a guest, I'm really looking forward to this, Jonathan Daughtry is going to be on the show here shortly. So yeah. those are two ways that you can find us. Well, that's so good. Well, 
uh, again, I just want to thank you, Nate, for for being faithful and uh, persevering in this space of ministry. And, and thanks again for being on the show with us today. It's been a joy. Yeah. Well, listeners, we're going to put all of that information in the show notes. We're going to put uh, Nate's book. We're going to put the link to the Samson Society. I highly encourage you to go check out their resources, get plugged in with their groups. Um, we want to help you take your next best step on your road to recovery. So please reach out to us. And we love to see you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio program. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.